0: i got to tell you, I have loved worshiping with you thus far this morning, and I was thoroughly impressed with that Bible study. You guys are super blessed to have Brother Sean here working with you. And uh, on behalf of my wife, she would say he spells his name right too. <laughs> I would imagine that most of us here today have been asked the question a time or two or three. Why doesn't your church use musical instruments? And they might even go so far as to say, I mean, doesn't everybody else? I mean, just about everywhere else i have gone. I mean, that, that's what they do. How come you guys don't have an organ or a piano or, or a, a praise band? What's interesting is we are actually not the only ones that sing a cappella even at present day 2023. It's interesting to note that there are a lot of groups that sing acapella still to this day. And I'll talk more specifically about the history of that word cappella in just a moment because it plays a vital role in our lesson. But people are surprised to learn that there are Mennonite groups that still sing acapella, that there are multiple Orthodox churches all over the world that still sing acapella, as you can see the list there before you. There are Amish churches that sing a cappella. United Baptist Churches of Appalachia, primitive Baptist churches still sing a cappella, as do we. So we're not the only ones, even at this present time. And something else that you might find interesting is that until about 200 years ago, there were many, many more churches that sang a cappella than what we witness in our modern-day churches including the Free Methodist Church, some Presbyterian churches as well. In fact, most Protestant churches, uh, stemming from the Puritans to the time of the Reformation, their practices associated with John Calvin, with Ulrich Zwingli, they were all non-instrumental. Again, this is up to just about 1800 or so, a lot of churches, more so than we see now, many, many more than we see now. We're also practicing a cappella music worship. So it's interesting if you just take a little time to study the past, you see we're not as different as sometimes people think. Another thing that's interesting is a lot of Roman Catholics are often surprised to learn that the general use of man made instruments in worship was not actually commonplace in their church until around 1000 AD. That's a long time from the first century. It's kind of shocking to note that the pipe organ, which in time, of course, as we know, became the central instrument in so many churches. It's fascinating, and I did not know this until recent studies, but did you know that the earliest form of pipe organs were actually being developed in 200 BC in Greece? Isn't that fascinating? Now, Obviously, they were not nearly as sophisticated as the organs that we have in churches and so forth now, but they've been around a long time. So my question is, why did it take so long, and I'm not picking on one denomination, but why did it take so long for the Catholic Church, quite possibly the oldest denomination, to accept, to incorporate the use of instrumental music in their worship? If indeed, uh, kind of the groundings of their religion, starting probably sometime around, you know, Constantine's reign, 300 A.D. and therein, that's 700 years approximately before they started just barely incorporating instrumental music, and then it's quite a long time before we see it becoming mainstream across the board. Well, to answer that question of why did it take so long, let's take another look, let's take a look, at that word a cappella, shall we? And I, and I know most of you know what it means, but it's interesting studying where it comes from because it, it definitely sheds some light on the unfolding of instruments down the road, but what we see in the not-too-distant past and, of course, all the way back to the first century. You see, the word a cappella is of Latin- Italian origin. Alla cappella is how they would say it, and it means in the manner of the chapel. Some versions put in parentheses or brackets in the manner of the Sistine Chapel, hence the reason I showed you that slide just a moment ago. Well, it's interesting that the Sistine Chapel was actually erected in 550 A.D. Can you imagine singing in that chapel? How gorgeous a cappella singing would be with the acoustics in that room? Some of you might have visited it before, but uh, I would imagine it's just beautiful to behold. But the common practice many years ago, and really only 200 years ago or so by most, was a cappella singing in chambers such as that. Now another definition says a cappella is from the Italian language and it means in the style of church music. In the manner of the chapel, literally according to the chapel, from cappella which means chapel. Originally. It says in reference to older church music, pre-1600, which was written for unaccompanied voices. So that's the style of church singing for over a thousand years. And only after about a thousand do we start seeing it become a little bit more accepted in the Catholic Church. Now it's also interesting to note that the 6th to 7th century practice of Gregorian chant brought about by... Oftentimes, he's referred to as Pope Gregory the Great, also known as plain chant. This was also sung a cappella originally, and you know what's interesting? It's still sung a cappella to this day. Does that say something? That's interesting, isn't it? Churches of Christ, along with many Orthodox churches as we've already seen, and the more conservative Baptist churches, we all to this day, sing a cappella. And again, people ask us why. And this is why. We base our worship on biblical authority. goes hand in hand with the Bible study this morning. We base what we do on what we can find in the Bible, specifically the New Testament. Because again, as Sean shared with us this morning, we don't follow the Old Testament anymore. We don't practice animal sacrifices and the whole nine yards. That's, that's not what we do under New Testament law. So we base our worship on biblical authority, the times of Christ and thereafter. We also base what we do, number two, on what the apostles practiced in their day and age. And again, they were being guided by the Holy Spirit. So they weren't doing just what they wanted to do. They were doing what God was guiding them to do through the Holy Spirit. And lastly, you can see this one's a little more gray in tone, perhaps visually. We don't need the history. And when I talk about history, I'm talking about secular history. Again, like in the Bible study, letters from people that lived in that time, but they weren't apostles. There's a lot of great information there that we see and it piles up. And so that piled-up history that's explaining what the 1st and 2nd and 3rd and 4th centuries were doing, it just adds all the more girth to the understanding of what the Bible teaches and what the apostles practiced. So that's a means by which we can see what the early church did and thereby what we ought to practice. So a study of these three things does us a lot of good in understanding what we ought to do in the realm of music worship. Now again, I say the New Testament because we no longer worship God according to the Old Testament. If we did, man, there'd be a lot of things we'd have to do today that we no longer have to do under the new law. We'd have to do things like sacrificing bulls and goats every year and birds. We'd have to offer up fruits and grains each year. There would be the burning of incense, the keeping of the Sabbath. There would be the, the having to be circumcised. And I know a lot of people still get circumcised as infants for health reasons to this day. But it's not something that was in association with the religious practices. Something one had to do per se. They did in the old. We're not commanded to do it in the new. Speaking of history, Nisotus of Ramesiana was a 4th to 5th century bishop, theologian, and composer living in modern-day Serbia. And he had this to say about music worship, speaking of the Old Testament. This is what he said. He says, only the corporal institutions have been rejected, like circumcision, like the Sabbath, sacrifices, discrimination in foods such as the comment, you know, they talk of, you can only eat kosher foods, if you will. So too, he says, the trumpets, the harps, the cymbals, and timbrels. For the sound of these we now have a better substitute in the music from the mouths of men. This makes me think of Hebrews 13 and verse 15, which reads, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His his holy name. Now, Nisotis goes on to say, what was spiritual in the Old Testament, for example, faith, piety, prayer, fasting, patience, chastity, psalm singing, all this, he says, has been increased in the New Testament rather than diminished. Again, the focus on the spiritual things increased. A focus on the physical practices becoming non-existent in the new in comparison to the old. We now live, as we said moments ago, under the New Testament. We live under the new covenant, the new law of Christ. We no longer live under the law of Moses. And I'm grateful that we don't because that was a much harder law to live under. I bring that up because one of the first arguments that people often make for the use of instruments in worship, even in modern times, of course, is what they read of in the Old Testament. And many times they go right to the book of Psalms, and they'll say, you know, what about passages like these? Well, Psalm 150, and I'll, you see several verses there, I'm going to start in verse 3. It says, Praise God with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise Him with the harp and the lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with the strings and the pipe. Praise Him with the clash of cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You can read of other passages in the Old Testament just like this. Numbers 10 and 10. 2 Chronicles 5 and verses 11 through 14 all read of instrumental music worship in the Old Testament. There is no doubt that in the Old Testament man-made instruments were indeed used to worship God. And this is one of many scriptures wherein we see God's people praising Him with man-made instruments. And I would imagine, folks, that it was incredibly beautiful to witness, to behold. I sometimes get frustrated with brethren that say things like, you know, instrumental music isn't beautiful. And therefore, it should have no place in the house of God. It is beautiful. It's gorgeous. You know, conducting a symphony and hearing the sounds of the strings and the horns and the, it's just, it's gorgeous to behold. But just because it's pretty doesn't mean that it's authorized by God. And so, again, we do what we do because of what we read in Scripture. We no longer live under the Old Testament. And so it's our obligation as Christians to study and practice what we read in the New Testament about our music worship. So let's um, let's consider that, shall we? Let's see what we're told to do. As far as commands go in music in the New Testament, we've already heard one of the scriptures a few times today and that's Colossians 3 and 16, but we'll look at Ephesians 5 first This is what we're told to do in verses 18 and 19. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Colossians 3 and 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 1 Corinthians 14 and 15, pardon me, I got a little behind there, reads, What am I to do? It says, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. And Romans 15 and verse 9, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing praise to your name or praises to your name. Hebrews 2 and 12. I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly, I will sing your praises. And you can see Hebrews 13 and 15 speaks again of singing. James 5 and 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Then let him sing praises. Brethren, did you ever see anything I read in there that said, play an instrument, play a lyre, play a harp, play a stringed instrument, play a trumpet, a horn, crash the cymbals. It's not there. Did you know that when my wife taught me the gospel, and we were both music majors, I remember one time I I was kind of shaking my head when she was saying, we don't use instruments, it's not in the Bible. And I'm like, come on, man, everybody's using instruments, what's the big deal? She said, I want you to spend this week scouring the Bible read through the New Testament. She said, if you can find the use of a physical instrument in there, like a piano, anything, she goes, I will join you in worshiping God with that. So I looked and I looked and I looked and I couldn't find it and I got mad. (laughs) She was right. It's not there. It's absent. All we see is sing and therefore we sing. And so again, We don't practice what's in the Old Testament, we practice what's in the New. Thereby, we cannot follow the physical practices in Psalms or those other books. But we can follow the practices of what we read in the New Testament, and thereby we do. Now, a second common argument, and I'm gonna leave no stone unturned today because I want you to go walk out of here and understand all of these arguments and know what the Bible has to say about them. A second common argument that often arises pertains to the Greek word salo, psalm, stated in Ephesians and Colossians. Well, what does this word mean? Because we know that way back when, the word was associated with the use of instrumental music. This is a very good, and I apologize it's so small and I'll talk about it, but this is a very good word study of the word psalm. Basically what it states through a very detailed study through history of this word. Early on from about 1500 to 1000 BC this word's most common meaning was to pluck a string and not necessarily an instrument. It was often associated with a bow and arrow plucking that string. Time passes. Some 500 years or so pass by. From 1000 BC to 500 BC Its focus was on striking or plucking a stringed instrument. Fast forward another 500 years or so, from 500 to 300 BC, the term salo takes on the meaning of a vocal song that is accompanied by a man-made instrument. Fast forward two to three hundred years and about three hundred 300 B.C. and forward into the time of the life of Christ and the Apostles, this word has now become strictly a vocal piece. And it's strictly vocal to the point that in that tongue you had to add additional words in a sentence to denote that there would be instruments joining the voice. Do words change over time? I'm going to say this very briefly and then move on. And again, I don't mean to poke fun or hurt hurt somebody, but look at the word gay. What did it mean just uh, maybe a couple hundred years ago? You ever heard the Christmas song, Don We Now Our Gay Apparel? Putting on nice clothing. You ever heard the song, Glitter and Be Gay? It was about being happy. What has the word come to mean now? Two hundred years, massive transition in its meaning. We're looking at over a thousand or so years here, makes perfect sense and this one's even related to itself because it's still in the realm of music. Words change over time. (laughs) I'm sure those of you that are a little older know the problems with trying to talk to your grandkids and stuff. They come up and talk to you and use phrases and words and you feel like they're talking to you in a foreign language. You know, I have no idea what that means, what you just said. You know, put that in English for me, will you? So words change over time and that one did indeed change to a vocal song. All right, here's another argument, and I would probably argue this is maybe the best argument there is. A third common argument comes from the New Testament itself, the book of Revelation specifically. The argument states that God is being praised in heaven with instruments. So if that is the case and the book of Revelation is in the New Testament, then why don't we use instruments as well? Sounds like a good argument. It's in the New Testament. Let's read some of those passages together and then see if we can gather some thoughts about why it doesn't make sense that we do what's going on in that picture. We're going to take a look at Revelation 15 verses 2 and 3 first. Revelation 15 verses 2 and 3 reads, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. They're playing harps in heaven and singing. Consider Revelation 14, verses 2 and 3. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. And let's also take a brief look at Revelation 5 and verses 8 through 10. Revelation 5 and 8 through 10. This verse also mentions the four living creatures and the 24 elders, all having harps. And then it says, And they had golden bowls of incense, which it says are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Beautiful scriptures. They do mention instruments. The problem with this argument, though, is that first of all, the book of Revelation is a dream-like vision of the Apostle John that is primarily figurative in nature. How many times does he say like in the book of Revelation? Imagine yourself being John. You're in this dream-like state, you're transported, if you will, into a realm where you cannot even describe it in human terminology, but you do the best you can. And you're taken into the realm of heaven. It is a future place. And you see things and you describe them, it's like this. That's a big part of what's going on. You also have people up there from the Old Testament who were godly. You have people up there from the New Testament who are godly. It would only make sense that they would speak of both singing and instruments because they were a part of both those phases or covenants, if you will. But brethren, again, that's a future place. It's a dream. It's figurative. It's not what we see going on in the first century or the second or the third or the fourth and it goes on and on and on and on. It's not the same place or situation but you can see why people would use that as an argument. Now, let's talk about apostolic examples of music worship. Again, what's that mean? Simply, what did we see the apostles doing who were being guided by the Holy Spirit, so they weren't just doing what they wanted to do, what are they practicing? We we understand Acts 20 and 7 that we partake of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week from that verse. It doesn't say thou shalt or you must, it says this is what they did. And so that's what we do. So again, we follow commands in scripture where we have them, and we follow what the apostles did by way of example as they were guided by the Holy Spirit. Let's take a look at a couple of those passages about them being guided by the Holy Spirit. In Luke 12 and 11 through 12, Jesus says, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. I would imagine that there were times they were scared out of their mind. Jesus, what are we going to say? We can't do what you do. We don't speak like you do. But he basically said, don't worry. The helper is going to come. He's going to guide you. He's going to tell you what to say. In John 16 and 13, when the spirit of truth comes, Jesus says, He will guide you into all truth. So let's see what we can gather from the Bible about how the apostles worshipped musically speaking. Matthew 26 and verse 30. This is just before Jesus goes into the garden, is arrested, taken to an illegal trial, and as time unfolds, is crucified to death. Prior to that, we have the first Lord's Supper initiated. What do they do after the Lord's Supper? This is what they do. When they, that is Jesus and the Apostles, had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Simple. But what did they do? They sang. They sang a hymn together. Here's another one, Acts 16 and 25. Acts is wonderful for watching the practice of the early saints. About midnight, Paul and Silas who we know were in prison for preaching the gospel, they were praying and they were singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I know what you're thinking. Brother, is that all you got? Just those two? Those are the only two scriptures you got about the apostles and their practices? Yes, it is. But I want you to add those two scriptures of practice to the seven commands you've already seen and that's nine verses and every single one of them says sing, 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 sing over and over again nine times. It never says play. Don't you think it would? Does God leave things out and just expects us to figure it out? He tells us what to do and He's very specific about what we're supposed to do. And what we see over and over again is sing. Now let's continue on. We talked a little bit earlier about a third area that adds support to an understanding that they sang and that they sang alone was what we see in history. And so I want to talk to you for just a few minutes about historical evidence that this is what the early church did. And churches, like we said, all the way up until about 200 years ago predominantly practicing this. In Hughes Oliphant Old's book entitled, The Patristic Roots of Reformed Worship, this is what he has to say about his studies of music history in the church. He said, gradually, over the course of the thousand years before the Reformation, which was in 1517, the medieval church reinstituted progressively aspects of the mosaic ceremonial ceremonial cultists, including the introduction of musical instruments, which had been suppressed in the churches until the 10th century, the organ being introduced for the first time around 900 AD. Their reintroduction was highly controversial, he said. The Reformation saw itself as recovering not only the biblical pattern of worship but the praxis of the early post-apostolic church. And so post-apostolic, you know, just after the apostles. The reformation of worship happened in stages, he says. The first stage of the reformation of worship established the formal principles of the reformation. And then he uses the word sola scriptura, which basically means we go back solely to the Bible. What does it say? That's all we do. Nothing else. We just do what we find in the Bible. Almost as if you're coming to the New Testament as a foreigner that's never seen it before and you're just going to do exactly what it says without any outside influence. Just what the Bible says alone. That was their approach. The Reformed churches, he goes on to say, applied the Scripture principle most thoroughly to the practice of worship, hence singing being a part of that practice. Now as we start bringing our lesson to a close, I'd like to consider these statements from historical Christian figures, many of them living around the time of the apostles and thereafter, and then commenting on the practices of the early church. It's fascinating to see this unfold. This is a guy by the name of Pliny the Younger. He was a Roman lawyer, a government official, and an author that was known for trying Christians in court for their beliefs. Look at the dates, 61 AD to 113 AD. He's living in the time of the apostles. Now listen to how he describes what he witnesses the Christians doing. He says they were wont to assemble on a set day before dawn and to sing a hymn among themselves to the Christ as to a God. He is what we refer to as a hostile witness. He didn't care what they were doing. I mean, he was happy to see them go to jail. But he was just simply commenting on what they did. And so what he witnessed was them singing a hymn to God in worship. That's what he saw. Tertullian, a 2nd to 3rd century Christian author from Carthage, that is a Roman province in Africa, he spoke in opposition to instrumental music and worship. He said that he didn't like the fact that it was in association with a lot of pagan rituals. It was involved in a lot of theatrical productions that were incredibly uh, hedonistic and evil and sinful and immoral. And so they did not like instruments having anything to do with the church because they were in such close connectivity to those kind of activities. And again, what's God say? We are to be separate from the world. If anything gives the allurement of ungodliness, put it away. Don't be a part of that. It doesn't need to be a part of what you're doing. You need to be separate. You need to be holy and set apart. Tertullian spoke of early Christian singing as being antiphonal. And that's an interesting uh, way of singing. He said that he he, he knew of a church where the women would stand on one side and the men would sing on another. It was a cappella, but they would sing back and forth antiphonally. So the men would sing and the women would respond and vice versa, and this was a common way to sing. He describes it between the two, speaking of men and women and or husbands and wives, they echo psalms and hymns and they mutually challenge each other, which shall better chant to their Lord. Kind of an interesting way to describe it. And just so you don't have a bad attitude towards the word chant, it comes from the word canto. And you've probably seen in Jewish synagogues, they still call their song leaders, cantors. It just means singer. That's all it really means, to sing or to be the singer. So there doesn't need to be a negative connotation, so to speak, attached to that word. In the 4th and 5th centuries AD, there were what were known as the Councils of Carthage. And in these meetings, church leaders would discuss important aspects of Christianity and worship. and Record the writings of their discussions. One such record states, On the Lord's Day, let all instruments of music be silenced. That's what they did. On the Lord's Day, didn't use those. Other days, perhaps, sure. But not on the Lord's Day. It's a day to sing, is what's being stated in a sense. Now, let's jump ahead, shall we? We've worked our way up into the 5th century, so we're talking about 400, you know, AD. Let's jump ahead a little bit in time and see what's going on then. So this is an Italian philosopher and theologian known as Thomas Aquinas. Notice his dates, 1225 to 1274. He had this to say about music worship, our church does not use musical instruments as harps and psalteries. To praise God with all, that she may not seem to Judaize. In other words, that she may not seem to do what is in the Old Testament among the Jewish faith. No, we are Christians and so we don't use instruments, he says. Italian Reformed theologian Peter Martyr Vermigli, notice his dates jumping ahead now, 1499-1562, he once said, Musical organs pertain to the Jewish ceremonies and agree no more to us than circumcision." Again, circumcision something associated with the Old Testament, something you had to do in that day and age, but not in the New Testament as we read. Here's another one, Swiss 16th century reformer of theology, Heinrich Bullinger. He said, "...since they also are not in accord with the apostles' teaching, in 1st Corinthians 14, as we just spoke about a few moments ago, the organs in the great cathedral of Zurich were demolished on the 9th of December in this year of 1527. Isn't that powerful? Man, that's taking it seriously right there, because I would imagine as those things are incredibly expensive now, they were probably very expensive in that day and age too. But they took what they read in Scripture seriously. And here's a face you've probably noticed. He said a lot of wise things in his day, some some wonderful sermons, uh, really good one-liners that are powerful for the Lord. This is a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon. He was a 19th century Baptist preacher. He observed that musical instruments were rejected and condemned by the whole army of Protestant divines. Those are his words. From the Reformation onward, except, he says, for Lutherans and many Anglicans who reject the RPW, and that means the regulative principles of worship. Again, that's in association with the Reformation, going back to only the Bible and just doing what it says. So, they had rejected that way of thinking. And he says this was the common practice up until the 19th century, like we said. Just go back 200 years and you actually see the uh, majority of churches singing a cappella. Now, we don't need these historic non-biblical documents to know what to do in our musical worship, but they definitely make more clear what was believed and what was practiced by Christians throughout the ages. And like I said, up until just 200 years ago, That's what the majority of them still did. The New Testament says over and over again, sing. Sing, sing, sing. Not play, but sing. So the big question is this, brothers and sisters in Christ. Like we studied earlier in that awesome Bible study, do you believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? Because if it is, then that's what we have to go by. And this is what the Bible has to say about how important it is to do things God's way and not our own. First Peter 4 and verse 11 reads, If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words, or the oracles as older versions of the Bible say, the very words or oracles of God. Not your words, God's words. That's what we teach, that's what we preach. First Corinthians 4 and 6 says, Do not go beyond what is written. And Revelation 22 and verses 18 and 19 reads, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Here's another scary one because this is talking to religious people. Matthew 7 and 21 and 22 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, again, that sounds like a religious person, doesn't it? Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, it is He, Jesus says, who will enter. Verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Sounds like a religious person. Did we not cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. God is serious about us doing things his way. I'm not a legalist as some might accuse me of being, and you've probably heard that term before too. I just strive to be obedient to what he says. I put his ways above mine. Would I like to have an orchestra at church? That'd be pretty cool. But I can't because the Bible doesn't condone it. It doesn't authorize it, and so we don't do that. And that goes for anything that we read in Scripture. We need to, and I know you've heard it time and time again, but it's powerful and ought to always be in our mind, we need to speak where the Bible speaks, and we need to be silent where it is silent. That's the right way to do it. That's the way that shows that you respect and revere God. And, 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 and what He says you see is holy, and you're not going to mess with it because you're just a lowly man. I'm just a lowly man. Who are we to argue or change what God says? Who do we think we are? So if you want to be right with the Lord, you want to be safe with the Lord, Sing, and sing with all of your heart, and He will love you for that. Those praises will be worthy to His name. They will glorify Him, and they will build up your fellow saints. That's what He asks us to do. Appreciate you all being here this morning, and I pray that things that we've said today have shed some light maybe on some questions you've had about this difficult subject, and help you to understand where the arguments are. and. Help you to understand what the scripture has to say about those arguments. So that when you have a conversation with someone that is peculiar, you know, thinks what you do is peculiar, you know, you have somewhere to go. Some knowledge to share, scriptural and even historic, that can benefit that conversation. Again, I thank you all for being here. Is it your guys' practice to do an invitation here too or no? Yes, okay, excellent. (laughs) So, again, Uh, If you're just joining us here for this first time or the whole process of being here for this uh, worship from the beginning to now, you have decided you want to make your life right with the Lord. The Bible tells us to be baptized for the remission of our sins. It tells us to wash away those sins in the watery grave of baptism. We would love to help you do that at this time. It's a glorious sensation to come up out of that water and feel that cleanliness like you've never felt before. And know that you are at peace and know that you are right with God and now know that you are a part of his heavenly kingdom here on earth, destined for eternal life. There's no greater peace that can be given a man than that. We would love to help you be immersed in that watery grave at this time. Maybe you're a brother that's been struggling with your faith, sister, that could use the prayers of this body. If We can assist you, encourage you, help you in any way. Won't you come forward as we sing our song of invitation? <clears throat> I'm a home breed.